The rest of us can turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. I'll just read from you from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you have heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles, so that they may be saved, with the result that they are always filled, that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. There are certain people today that when they think about God's word and the scriptures and the Bible, that they believe it's just simply a bunch of a bunch of words on a page, that it's man-made, and at best has just a lot to teach about this guy named Jesus. But what we're going to learn today is that God's word and his gospel message are much more than just words on a page, and they're much more than just something made up by man. They actually have the power to change and transform a life. And change is not only through the experience of being forgiven, but in providing us with new direction, new purpose, new priorities, new values as to what we believe to be right and wrong, and a new hope, a new hope, what to look forward to. Now, all of these realities had taken place in the life of the Thessalonians, at the preaching of Paul, Timothy, and Silas. But what we're going to learn today from Paul is that the biggest evidence for their transformed life was actually in their willingness to suffer for the sake of Jesus. How did Paul know that the word had gripped their hearts? One of the biggest evidences was that they were willing to suffer for the sake of Christ. So let's begin by reading verse 13 together. For this reason, we are also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you have heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Notice that Paul once again opens up by giving thanksgiving to God for the Thessalonians' faith. I say once again because this is actually the second time in Paul's letter that he's done this. You'll remember in chapter 1, in verse 2, he said, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness and hope in our Lord Jesus. So here Paul was giving thanks to them in the beginning of the chapter, and later on gave thanks to God for their example that they were to others in the Roman Empire for their willingness to endure persecution. So Paul's first prayer of thanksgiving was, uh, was an emphasis on their continued faithfulness. In verse 13, the emphasis 
on, is in thanksgiving is on their initial response to the gospel when they first heard it. And not only this, the impact, the impact the gospel had in changing their lives and giving them new direction and new purpose and new priorities. Now, what Paul's particularly thankful for here is how they received the message that they heard. He said, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it is, the, the word of God. Now, when Paul recounted their conversion to Christ here, he's recognizing there was two ways in which they could have thought and heard the word of God. In one sense, he understood that as Paul was teaching them and preaching, that they could have seen this as Paul's message. They could have seen the message as having human origin. But he says, no, you didn't receive it that way. You actually, you heard my mouth saying the words, but you actually believe the message was had divine origins. It actually came from the Lord. And so Paul's excitement and praise and thanks, thanksgiving was that they recognized the word as not being from Paul, as, it, as if it originated from them, but they heard it for what it was, which was the word of God. It's as if God was speaking to them directly, even though he was using the mouth of Paul to say the message. So how could this spiritual recognition take place? Well, we touched on this in chapter 1 and verse 5. We should read this again together. How do you go from hearing the words of men to going to the hearing the words of God? Well, when he remembered their conversion, he said, Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in the power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So what we see is this dynamic duo, the Batman and Robin scenario, remember? Where they're working together. We have the word of God being spoken, but we have the Holy Spirit um, working on the hearts of the, of the listeners as the word is being spoken. Now remember what the Holy Spirit's role is. In John 16 and verse 7, we looked at this two weeks ago. He says, it's best for you that I go away, because if I don't, the helper, the Holy Spirit, won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. So as the words are being spoken by Paul, the Holy Spirit is now in power and in full conviction helping the Thessalonian people see that this actually is the word of God. And every person to receive Christ must come to a place where they recognize their helplessness without him and feel the weight of their sin. And so this is what's going on with Paul in his thanksgiving. He said, when this happened to you, there was a shift that happened. You recognized this was no longer man's words, but this was God to you. So let me give you a theoretical, hypothetical story to place you in the life of a Thessalonian to see how this actually works. How does the dynamic duel grip your life? So you've been in the family business now for about 10 years. As far back as you can remember, your family has always been silversmiths. Your primary income has not come from the selling of like bracelets and necklaces. Your primary income has come from making and selling idols 
to the god Apollo. The locals love those idols. You're, you're, a, you're a port city, so merchants and travelers come to Thessalonica love those idols. And so your family through the generations has made a fortune on selling idols. It's Monday morning. You wake up, you're ready to go to work as usual. You expect nothing out of the ordinary to happen that day. Business as usual. You go through the morning making your sales, making your idols. It's time for lunch. And you and your buddies decide to go down to the temple for a meal. You sit down for the meal and just before you eat your steak sandwich that's just been freshly sacrificed to Apollo, you take the time to raise your glass to your Lord and your, and your Lord is Caesar. So you take your glasses and you give him thanks for his provisionary care of you and how well you've done in sales over the last month. The day comes to an end and you're strolling home and you're frantically met by family members on the street who seem to be shaken up. And you learn from them that about a week prior, three visitors had arrived in town preaching a very radical message different than the one that you've been living your whole life. These three men have been teaching there's only one God. They've been teaching that he is the creator of heaven and earth. That only he deserves to be worshipped. Only he is Lord. And as the sole creator, he is not happy with you as Thessalonians for the way you've lived your life, and so judgment is coming. But there's good news. This creator God has shown his love for you and provided a way for forgiveness to be granted, reconciliation with God to be made, and it's through his one son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for your sins, was buried and was risen on the third day. He defeated death, the works of the devil, and has provided you with the opportunity for new life. The crazy thing is that you've learned from your family that they've believed this message, but you become instantly irritated. And so you think, I'm going to go hear this for myself. So you hear about Paul and Silas and Timothy and how they're preaching on a Wednesday evening or meeting at somebody's home to give the gospel. And so you intend to show up. And when you show up, you hear the same message. And you hear it's the voice of men. The message is coming from these men's mouths. And so you initially you think, well, this must be their message. It's one of the many beliefs out there. But as they continue, something starts to happen deep down in your soul a shift begins to occur. As God's word is spoken, the Holy Spirit begins to use his word to move powerfully in you and bring full conviction. You are cut to the heart and you realize these words aren't man-made. This is the Lord of heaven speaking to you directly. God is simply using these men to get the message out. And like the family who shared their excitement earlier that day. You share in it now because you surrender your life to Jesus Christ. You accepted it 
not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. And you know what I love about the Thessalonian story? That is our story, isn't it? At one time, the Bible, that meant nothing to you. The gospel message, that meant nothing to you. That's just man's beliefs. That's just one of many belief systems out there. These are just words on the page. They have no power. They have no authority. They don't mean anything. But one day you hear that parent or that grandparent or that friend or that, that person on the radio or that pastor speaking the word of God. And you realize that this was not a person anymore speaking to you, but it was the Lord through his Holy Spirit and through his word convicting you, trying to get a hold of your life. And he did. And so we surrendered our lives to him as well. The Thessalonian story is our story. And if that's not your story yet, then I urge you, the way Paul would have urged the Thessalonians to make that your story. It's a loving creator God in here right now who's crying out to you. And it's not me speaking to you. It's God speaking to you. He's asking you for your commitment to him. But, while, but what Paul teaches us in verse 13 is, it's not only, not only was God's word necessary to bring people to salvation, but also to bring people to a place of continued transformation. Let me say that again. God's word was not only to bring salvation, but transformation. In the second half of verse 13, he says, which the, the word of God also performs its work in you who believe. In you who believe. So he's moved from the initial conversion of the Thessalonians to now saying God's word still works in you. It still performs in you for those of you who believe. It still has a, a place in the Christian's life. So the word of God is not just powerful in bringing us to Christ. It's powerful in changing us in Christ. So not only is it powerful enough to bring you to Christ, it's powerful enough to change you, to make you more like Christ. And God's word becomes a powerful force that continues to work in the life of a believer. Now, how does this look? The same, same goes for the same thing that we said earlier. The word and the Holy Spirit work together. But there's a fantastic uh, passage in Hebrews 4, and all of you probably know this one. The word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So according to Hebrews 4 and verse 12 and 13, the word of God is active. When it's spoken, the Holy Spirit uses it and brings conviction. It uncovers everything that you've been trying to hide. And it wants to transform you and change you into the likeness of Jesus. So, you're impatient. That's your trait. And the word of God has opened up speaking about patience and gives you biblical examples of men and women who've shown great patience. And the Lord is calling you to patience.
And it wants to perform its work in you who believe. It wants to change you to be more like Jesus. Maybe you're someone who usually speaks ill of people. And then you read a section about encouraging one another. And you, using only language that edifies and builds up. And the word of God convicts you and has the power to transform you because it's saying, I've got a better way for you. Our family now has stolen a one-liner from Toby Mack in his song called Speak Life. You know, I can walk up to my boys and say, are you speaking life? No, dad. Well, in the Dexter household, we speak life. Way to go, Toby Mack. Who copied Jesus and got that from the word of God. <laughs> We've been unforgiving. We hold on to unforgiveness. And we read passage after passage about forgiveness. The Lord is trying, is getting a hold of us to divide um, soul and spirit, joints and marrow. To say, I want to perform a work in you. Change to be more like my son. Maybe we're known for our anger and we're easily provoked. Doesn't People walk in eggshells around us. And the Lord is saying, no, I have a gentle option for you. And you can have victory in this area of your life. So the word that originally draws us to Christ begins to conform and transform us to look more like Christ. There's a lot of conversation in the church, you know, about predestination. What does predestination mean? Well, I can tell you what Romans 8.29 says. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of Jesus. You know what you're predestined for? To look like Christ. When you receive him, you're to be transformed to look like him. So the goal and the purpose of the Christian life is to show us that salvation is more than just experiencing God's forgiveness, but be to, to be transformed into his likeness. My prayer every morning when we come here is that that happens to you, especially when you're here on a Sunday morning. When I'm preaching, I don't want you to hear or even come to the conclusion that these are my words or my message or my interpretation of the scriptures. My prayer is that you accept what I'm saying for really what it is, which is the word of God, which performed this work in you, who, for those of you who believe. I'm the mouthpiece, but I trust fully, if I've done my work and surrendered my life to Jesus Christ, that the Holy Spirit uses the words that I'm saying to pull at your heartstrings and change you from the inside out. And you experience the preaching of his, his word his transforming power. Why don't we take two, three minutes right now to break from the sermon? I want you to just quietly in your chair, or your chair, your pew, to do two things. One, thank the Lord for the transforming work he has done in your life up to this point who you used to be to who you are now. Give him thanks for what he's done. Secondly, 
Ask the Lord right now, what is it you still want to do in me? What work needs to be still performed in my life to make me more look like Jesus? Just wait in silence. You might already know, but give him a chance to say more. Let the Holy Spirit minister to you now and bring something to mind that you've never maybe thought of. Give him the space and time, though, to work in your life. So let's just take two or three minutes right now to pray quietly. Okay, I trust you can continue this time with the Lord later today if you feel like he's being saying a lot to you this morning. But as we've been saying, salvation is more than just experiencing the forgiveness of God, but being transformed into his likeness. For Paul, in this chapter anyway, the strongest piece of evidence that the word of God had worked powerfully in the Thessalonians' lives was that they were willing to suffer persecution for the sake of Christ. Look at verse 14. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to men. No doubt Paul wrote this as an encouragement to them to really say, you've become carbon copies of what the churches who were faithful were like, who predated you back in Judea. Look at what they had to endure. Look what you've had to endure, and you're an imitator of them. God's faithful people in the past, you are now just like them. Now, what's ironic about this statement is that Paul puts the reference on the suffering coming from, at least in his experiences with the churches in Judea, back to the Jewish people. Who was the Jew primarily responsible for the suffering for the churches in Judea initially? The very man giving the message of verse 14. It was Paul who was one responsible initially for it. Remember what his life was like in the persecution he brought back to these churches. In Acts 8 and verse 2, godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul, who was now Paul, began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Paul's own testimony years later probably 20 years later, somewhere around that neighborhood. In Acts 26, he's at the end of his life, and he's giving a defense to the king, the Roman king. And, he, and uh, he says this, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down 
into foreign cities. Paul was carrying out the same atrocities as we see in Israel. Paul was a religious terrorist. Read Acts 26 and tell me, is that not Hamas? Identical, absolutely identical. Casting your vote against them, putting them in prison, ripping families apart, putting people to death, punishing them, which means torturing them. Paul was a religious terrorist. He would side on the side of Hamas in these in regards to Jesus Christ. This is really, really important. So G Paul is not going after all Jewish people, though, because he himself is Jewish. And in Acts 17 and verse 4, remember what we learned there in the initial sermon, many Jews had come to faith. But he is speaking against people who oppose Jesus Christ. And the Jews were them. Many of the Jews were them, I should say. Now Paul says, just like the Jews suffered under their countrymen, you've been suffering under yours. You've become imitators of the churches in Judea. Now we don't know to what degree the Thessalonians were experiencing the suffering. Was it like tit for tat, like exactly the same? We don't know. But regardless, Paul is clear that God's word had performed its work in them by the fact that they were willing to endure hardship for the sake of Christ. It's important because our view of Christianity in the West is very different than the East. We've lived under different pretenses, pretenses since our inception of the country. Christianity has brought nothing but incredible blessings to us. But as the culture changes, we need to be prepared how to view this through the Lord's eyes. And if we undergo persecution, we are not, God's not distant from us. And we could easily think that. Anytime hardship comes across our table, God's abandoned me. That's not the view of the East. That's not the view of the scriptures. That's just because we're so comfortable with Christianity in the West. But I want to remind you here that this is a potential possibility for us. And we need to have the biblical perspective and understanding of how to view this. In Acts chapter 5 and verse 40, after the apostles were told not to speak in the name of Jesus, they did. They continued. And it says, after the calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name and then released them. Now listen to their response. They went on their way rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name's sake. They went away rejoicing because they were considered worthy to suffer. I want to show you one of the most incredible verses in all the scripture. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 32. But remember the former days when you, when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through the reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. 
they joyfully accepted the seizure of their property. What's the average cost of your house? 500 grand, 600 grand. Some of us live in million dollar homes. If they took that from you because of your faith in Christ, would you joyfully accept the seizure of it, knowing that you have a better possession, a lasting one? Or would you bawl your eyes out thinking God's abandoned you and he's distant from your life? Janice, about uh, five or six years ago, came home undone and started to cry about 10 o'clock at night. I was like, what's going on? She goes, well, she went out for dinner with someone very close to her. And the conversation turned to spiritual things, and Janice had to share the gospel with her. And the girl um, that she shared with didn't seem to accept the message that great. Janice came home distraught because she thought she'd offended her and hurt her and Maybe she said things she shouldn't have by proclaiming God's truth. And I listened to her and sympathized with her. And I said, "Hun, you need the Lord's perspective on this. In Matthew 5, it says that, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute and falsely say all things, kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So I said, "Hun, I sympathize with your pain, and I get it. I'd hurt too. But the Lord actually is not worried about whether you did the right thing. He's actually applauding you from heaven, saying, good job, my daughter. You shared truth. Again, the way we share it's important. We always have to make sure the message and not the messenger is the stumbling block. There's a way we can share wisely, but Janice is gentle. Janice is humble. But again, we just need the Lord's perspective. But Paul makes it clear in verses 15 and 16. How the Lord views people who hinder his gospel going forward. He says they're not pleasing to God, but they're hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon him to the utmost. This is powerful because when you and I think about sin, we think about, well, that's lying, sin's cheating. Um, sin is like, you know, outbursts of anger. Here, what Paul is saying is, sin is when you prevent some, the gospel of Jesus going forward. <laughs> Anyone who prevents the message of Christ going forward is stands under God's judgment. That's a huge sin to the Lord. They're preventing truth from going out. doesn't matter whether you're an individual 
an organization, a nation, when you hinder it, God's wrath is going to come. Now, what's interesting is the tense of the wrath. He puts it in the present. He says, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. So Paul's saying it's already come. Now, we do see examples of that happening in Scripture, don't we, when people hinder the gospel going forward? Or they, or they do something to oppose God? I think of Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. They lied about keeping back money for their property. The Holy Spirit took their life. In Acts chapter 12, Herod is being extremely arrogant. And the Lord sends an angel of destruction over him and takes his life. So we do have example of Jewish people who lose their life because of hindering God. But there's another option here. Perhaps what he actually has in mind is um, not so much present wrath, but it could also be referring to future. Consider John 3, 16, the famous passage. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already in the present. Because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. So you stand condemned already because you've rejected Christ. So you stand judged. The wrath, the wrath has come in this lifetime. It's just not fully been accentuated or realized, I should say, as of yet. The full realities of that come into play in the future. But either way, whether you think God has brought judgment in the Jews in this world at that time, in a very practical sense, or whether you think it's future is irrelevant. The reality is, is that they stand under it, and God is not pleased with people who do not allow the gospel to go forward. So what can we learn from today's message? I'm going to leave you with three questions to ponder for the day. Number one, when God's word is spoken to an unbeliever, it becomes a means of their salvation. Right? You accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. Are we known as people who share the gospel? We have lots of people in our lives that don't know the Lord. But this is the means by their salvation. It is the gospel. We have to be wise in when we speak it and how we speak it, but the question still remains, are we people who are known as gospel sharers? Are we proclaimers of God's truth? Secondly, the word of God is the word of God is not just powerful in bringing us to Christ, but changing us in Christ. So as you look back since your conversion, in what ways has your life been radically changed? What areas of your life do you still need to be to mature in and surrender to the Lord? 
Are you giving him the time and space to even work in your life? Taking those times of quiet times to read and pray and ask the Lord, what else do you have for me? And lastly, Jesus said, we are blessed when we are persecuted for his name and our future reward will be great. Have you faced strong opposition for your faith in Christ? How did you respond to this? Was your attitude similar or different to the Thessalonian Christians? How does Jesus' word to you from Matthew 5 change your perspective on suffering for the Lord? Lord, we give you thanks for your, your word, how it performs its work in us, both in bringing us to you and in continuing to help us grow, to become more like you. I pray, Lord, for the countries that we've just brought to attention to, that while we remember them this morning, that we would continue to remember them in the future days as well, that this would not just be a one-off, that we'd always have a heart for our brothers and sisters throughout the world. And Lord, we just thank you for what you have done amongst us and what you will do in us in the future as well. We give you this day and all the praise and glory, especially for what you did in Cindy's son. And we just thank you for her testimony as a reminder how, of how good you are and how her testimony of her son actually was perfect for the sermon this morning in terms of how you work and how you move in people. May we never forget that because Phil and that pastor that had that dinner that night obviously shared the gospel with him if he was willing to get in the bathtub. The conversation was just not about the Calgary Flames and the Edmonton Oilers and the Blue Jays. It was about you. And they were able to transition into that conversation in a natural way that led to his conviction and his, his transformation. May that be a living example to us and give us the confidence to share in who you are in Christ's name. Amen.